0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of November 12th, 2021. This is Charles Zane. I'm a writer and filmmaker. I'm here with filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. And editor of chief of No Film School, George Gentleman. Hello. We are going to be talking about option contracts, what you need in them, what kind of work you should be doing on projects without them, and how to navigate them properly. And then in tech news, we're going to be talking about the new dji mavic 3 and on top of all that we have another good deal bad deal that i have so many thoughts about about doing the proof of concept for a feature and what kind of deals and commitments you should be making to that cast and crew that is this week on the no film school podcast All right, our first conversation point this week, Kath and I were talking about this before we pressed record, option agreements with writers. As a filmmaker, especially an indie filmmaker, you're going to end up in situations where you might be collaborating with someone on a project and what kind of option agreement do you want to do with them to sit yourself in the best stead? Now, I'm not talking about you're trying to get a $150 million movie made and there's a New York Times bestseller and you're going to option it for a million dollars. That is not what I am talking about. Like, if you're in that situation, great, and I'm glad you're listening to the podcast, and give me a call, let's have coffee when you're in New York. But for the rest of us, indie filmmakers, option agreements have a different place. Like, the feature I directed, I didn't write, right? Someone else wrote it, J.T. Arbogast, and his wife, Kim Diltz, and they're wonderful, and they also produced the movie. And so we had a relationship, director and writer, about how we were going to work together. And if I'd been a producer, I would have done an option agreement about that. So we wanted to have a little conversation today about sort of the more indie aspects of writer director relationships. And I think the indie aspects of doing option agreements, if you're like directing and producing and you find a script that you love and you're like, oh, I want to make this. What are the kind of things you want to put in those option agreements? What are the kind of things that you should be looking out for? Does that uh, cover all the territory?
1: Yeah, and I can just give a little backstory about my own situation now. I'm producing and now we'll be directing a script that a good friend of mine has written. And so originally I was just going to be producing it, and then she offered me the role of director. She originally had planned on directing it herself, but recently offered the role to me. And so so far, even though I've kind of been working in this capacity for a little while, we haven't papered anything. And once she offered the role of director to me, I figured I should probably put something down on paper <laughs> and I'm just not really sure where to begin in this situation. So yeah, would love to hear your guys' thoughts on how to proceed. So I have, I have so many thoughts.
0: This, this one inspires a lot in me. And also, you know, and I don't actually know if Kim and JT are regular listeners, but I will say that like every project you have regrets about and like one of my biggest regrets about my future is that I didn't push harder for like in, in one specific case changes to the script that i knew were important earlier and i think that one of the things you know directors often get this bad reputation for being like difficult or too controlling over the script but one of the truths of the matter is that like after the film is done everyone's going to assume the director is responsible for everything so like if there's a sequence that's too slow no one is ever like well the screenwriter didn't actually give you enough tension through the second act it's always the director let it sag in the second act right so like you have to work as hard as you can to get the script in the place to do the job it needs to do. And I think that can be a really difficult process. So like specifically in, you know, my, my regret about the film is, you know, there was a sequence that I thought we should cut and we ended up shooting it, which took a full day and we ended up cutting it in post. And I knew in pre-production we were going to cut it. And I wish we could have spent that time on set doing other things, spending more time on scenes that I knew were going to make it, that I knew were real tent poles. And if I'd, if I had worked earlier on that, I think, you know, I mean, look, every movie is what it is. I've been to screenings of my film with 300 people where everybody cried. Like I'm proud of the film, but like, that is the thing where I'm like, I wish I'd worked harder on that aspect of the script earlier, but it's complicated because working with people on a script they wrote is very hard. People put everything they had into it. And this isn't a situation where we're all working together and there's a big budget and somebody's getting WGA for Guild Minimum for every rewrite they do. So, you know, they're going to... These aren't journeymen. These are often younger screenwriters earlier in their career, passionate about their project, unwilling to change anything. And that's a different relationship. And if you as a producer are used to working with people who are like getting paid for a draft, going to go in, tear it all apart, put it all back together anew, it's a much different thing to deal with someone who like on an indie project is probably doing these rewrites for free because they want it to be the best it can be because they're still involved and on an indie project had to have the passion to write it for free, had the vision to have the idea. And actually this whole conversation is making me not regret that I didn't successfully get that scene cut <laughs> because now I can really see it from the writer's perspective of, no, like that like there were reasons that the scene made sense. We ended up solving other aspects of why that scene needed to be there in the edit so that the scene didn't need to be there, but like I get why writers, especially writers of a spec that is getting turned into an indie are so attached.
1: Yeah, I guess in sort of like building off of something you just said, Charles, you mentioned like the Hollywood kind of option agreement versus like option agreements for indie situations. So what I did was I I googled option agreement, found a PDF of an existing option agreement that's like a very legalese kind of document with the agents and Hollywood players involved. And I was like, should I just be borrowing this template or should I be coming up with something new that's more appropriate for the relationship that I have with the writer? Should I be consulting a lawyer? I don't have a lawyer. You know, like where do I begin as an indie person here?
2: I would get a lawyer to work with on this project who can advise you I know, easier said than done and expensive. But I feel, like some, I feel like a lawyer is a good move when you're undertaking something like you are to help you know how to protect yourself and how to protect others and the future of the project as you go. Because I think a lot of people undertake these things without thinking about end results. But you want a, a paper trail. You want to have everything you need buttoned up from the beginning and it's easy to kind of jump in and think like shoot now, ask questions later. I think that's a mistake, even though I'm a huge proponent of, of DIY bootstrapping and like as a filmmaker, I'm a huge proponent of that. I've done it a ton. but I always had nervousness when I didn't have everything like truly cleared. and, and when I first my first job where I was working on something, as a line producer, where we did have, we were working with a production company that did have a lawyer on retainer. I loved that I could call this lawyer and just run stuff by him all the time. It yeah, was like the security blanket for me that for years I hadn't had, and it always irked me. So, and sometimes people use their managers or their agents kind of like that, but I would not recommend that because they're not lawyers and they're not operating from the same. Points of interest. But I also always tried to work with like a CPA to get advice on how I made sure that I did everything correctly in terms of reporting at the end. But I, so I was a little anal about that stuff. I think it protects you and I think it's wise. But to answer your question regarding this specific situation, Charles, I think, is talking a lot about it in terms of the creative side. But I think in terms of the business side, I would feel comfortable as you embark on this. If I were you and I was doing this, I would probably not, I would be like more excited about everything about the process and think like, why would I want to add in like a lawyer? Like the least fun thing in the world, the most expensive, annoying thing in the world, arguably apologies to lawyers. But I just think it's like having somebody like that, who's in your corner, who can like, even maybe if you know somebody that you can shoot something over to, to take a look, who is a lawyer and maybe isn't going to be like your full-time entertainment lawyer, et cetera. But like, I don't know. I know so many lawyers that you could shoot a a document or a contract over and be like, "Can you just tell me like, you know, is this going to protect me? Is this going to is this have everybody's best interests, you know, mm-hmm. in mind?" cuz that just feels like an extra layer of security to me.
1: I guess my follow-up questions too would be like, you know, in looking over what an option agreement normally includes, it's about the producer getting the temporary rights to Put pieces together to make a script into a movie, right? And then eventually having the option to purchase the rights completely, right? So, in working with a friend who's written a script, introducing this kind of like very formal element, one feels sort of like a disruption to the relationship. And so, I would be curious to get your guys' thoughts on like how to do this in a smooth way, but then also there's like the talk of money involved, right? Where an option agreement normally includes some sort of like regular amount that you would pay to the writer for the option. And then an amount that you would pay to the writer for the purchase of the rights completely. And so my thoughts are like, what should those amounts be? <laughs> mm, yeah. When it's That's a good spend. question.
2: Does, can I ask you a question though, because of the friendship angle, Yeah, because every situation's unique. Does this, writer want to be a producer and want to retain any kind of ownership of the rights is there a way to create a partnership like a joint venture on the project
1: yeah that's such a great question i know that this writer had a real interest in owning the story and not letting other writers be involved and so i think in that sense maybe this writer should be producer to retain that right or at least there should be some mention of that in the option agreement
2: You could make this writer an executive producer and negotiate what that means between the two of you in Mm -hmm. terms of control and have that in writing, but then avoid the fact that you have to option or own the rights to their work. You could own the film rights. It is tricky. Like What I keep thinking about another experience with this, even though it's way different, is my grandfather. My maternal grandfather was a novelist and he wrote a couple books that were optioned for movies. And they, a couple were made, a couple never were. The rights continue to float around from like descendants. This, he wrote them a long time ago, my maternal grandfather. <laughs> so the rights have like passed on to the descendants of. So he co wrote one of the books. So that guy's descendants own part of them. And every once in a while, various filmmakers or producers or sons of producers, like, you know, a son of an MGM exec would like contact my aunt out of the blue and be like, Hey, and then what I'll lead to is like multiple lawyers today pouring over documents created in 1967 or Mm -hmm. something about the rights to a book in perpetuity that and how it might apply to a streaming series in 2019 or whatever. And I only bring it all up because it's so crazy. And that's why I feel, those kinds of things are why I feel like you should always do it as much by the book with the help of an attorney as possible, because who knows, you know, and like, maybe you guys make kind of an informal agreement that's not documented. Maybe you make the movie and maybe then there's like money. Maybe there isn't money, but maybe there's money like a generation from now and somebody wants to yeah. adapt something. I have no clue. I'm just saying like, it's just smart, I think, to undergo these things from the get-go with a formal agreement in place. And I know that doesn't answer your question, but that's why I would turn to an attorney personally and try to nail down something that works for both of you. And since you're friends, my tactic would just be to say to the friend, hey, I know we both have interests here. I know we both want to feel protected. So let's have a joint conversation with an attorney about how to get all of our needs met. So as we go forward, We're safe and our desires for this project and whatever comes next are honored. I think that's great.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
0: So I have like two main sort of threads of my responses. One, let us never forget that, like, if you are going to be developing the script with this person and navigating that experience, you're going to be contributing to the project. And so an option agreement also protects you for your contributions, right? Like, let's say you spend a year developing the script. It really improves. It gets much better. And then someone else comes along, reads the script, is like, oh, wait a minute. This script is great now. And it's a lot of work that you put into it. And they're like, I'm going to go make it. And it's all these, like, it's a character you added. It's like lines of dialogue that you revised. Are you going to feel great about the script then going out? You've been cut out because you didn't have an option agreement that documented your contribution. And this can get super messy. I mean, people forget about this, but not every James Bond film has been produced by Eon. So Kevin McClory was a producer working on Thunderbolt, Thunderball, the original first James Bond movie, and did a ton of work developing it for the screen. And then Somebody else came along and Ian Fleming tried to cut Kevin McClory out. Kevin McClory sued, ended up having the rights to the work he contributed to Thunderball, which gave him stake in Thunderball. But then when he made Never Say Never Again 20 years later, it was because he still had rights to Thunderball. So he could still make James Bond movies, even though Eon didn't produce it. And then he tried to get an animated James Bond TV show going in the 90s, which is why they made James Bond Jr., which is an Eon production, but that was to try and stop Kevin McClory from making a James Bond movie. That was uh, a cartoon, uh, James, right? Yeah, it was a cartoon. That, yeah, he was going to make, apparently he was developing a James Bond cartoon, which is why Eon came out with James Bond Jr. to try and like cut him off at the pass. So like this stuff gets messy on big productions and little productions, and if you spend a year developing the script, you're going to be creatively contributing to it and it's good to document that going back to what you said about like general lawyer reluctance lawyers get a terribly bad rap but in my experience most entertainment lawyers if you are just about being an evil dickhead you'll go be an oil lawyer like once you have your (laughs) your law degree there's like other stuff you can do to make a ton of money most entertainment lawyers like love movies are usually movie nerds or book nerds or whatever their specific thing is like And are just like, this is my way of participating in the industry I love. There are many entertainment lawyers that will work on contingency of deals and helping you build your relationship in the beginning and things like that. And like you should have a lawyer. Yeah, and you should have a lawyer in this conversation because they've been through the beauty of a lawyer, especially one with subject matter expertise, is they've been through all this before. They've done a million indie feature options and they get to use the beautiful term industry standard. And they get to say things like, like, I don't know what industry standard is on this. My assumption is that it's something like a dollar a year to renew and then guild minimum if the film gets made. Uh-huh. But if you, if you have a lawyer in this conversation, they'll get to say like, oh, it's actually really normal these days to do 100 a year to re- keep renewing it for up to four years. You have four years to get the movie made. You're paying 100 a year for the option in the short term. And then it'll be guild minimum or two times guild minimum if the movie gets made or 2% of budget or whatever it is the lawyer will know what general industry practice is. You don't have to follow general industry practice. You can invent your own things. But it's really great to know what everybody is doing. And a lawyer's job, I mean, I tell this story all the time, but I, when I hosted a TV show, I hired a lawyer to do my contract because I didn't have an agent because I wasn't a host. It was a weird thing. And like, literally, I hired a lawyer. And an hour later, he called me back with triple the offer. Because he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were offering you their default, you're not really a host thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. no. What he should be getting is three times that. And like within an hour, it was three times the original offer because he knew industry standards, he knew okay. the norms. And like, that is a really valuable, powerful thing to keep in mind. So like, I think as you navigate this situation, especially knowing that it's a friend, I think you want to navigate finding the right way to keep that friendship through a development process. And I think contracts are the best way to do that. Because the beauty of a contract is that it forces everybody to discuss their assumptions. And once everybody's discussed their assumptions, you can then work together in the safety of, well, we know how this is supposed to be working. Whereas if you do too much work without clarifying your assumptions, she could be assuming that you're just giving her notes for free and that she's free to take those notes wherever she wants if she can get someone else doing it, while you're doing it assuming every note you contribute still belongs to you. So it's, you know, it's a tricky thing to figure out.
1: That's great, and actually, pre-record. I know Charles. When I had mentioned that we didn't have an agreement set up you were, yet, you said stop all work because, <laughs> because yeah, because I, I am already making these contributions, and I think that that's really a great observation.
0: Yeah, I mean, so there's a classic story that Elliot Silverstein likes to tell. Elliot Silverstein helped invent the deal memo, and the reason Elliot Silverstein helped invent the deal memo is. It's a widely acknowledged thing that we're all so eager to do the work in Hollywood. No one ever wants to wait for everything to finish being papered before we do it. And so his whole thing was, look, the producers don't want to pay for legal. Nobody wants to do this the slow way. We all want, we're eager to get going on projects. Can we just do a deal memo where we have a phone call? And, and the deal memo will be, we will take notes on that call and sign it. Mm-hmm. And that was the original idea behind a deal memo in the 60s. So we know that filmmakers just want to get moving. We get excited about a thing and we want to start writing. And so like, you don't have to stop everything, but you do want to simultaneous to continuing to develop the script, start a conversation with a timeline for let's do a deal memo of what this option looks like, where we talk to a lawyer to, and you can do a conference call together with a lawyer. Like this is your buddy, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to have, you have a lawyer and they have a lawyer. You can both go talk to a lawyer together about Mm -hmm. what kind of terms you want to put in.
1: That's great.
0: That's probably what I'm going to do. Awesome. All right. Well, that was a lot. Up next, tech news. Quick little tech news that everybody should be aware of this week is DJI has come out with the new Mavic 3 drone. So, why should indie filmmakers be aware of drones and know what the latest and greatest is? So, drone shots are a staple of indie filmmaking at this point. The ability to go out and get a drone establishing shot of your location, the ability to go out and get drone takes of your action sequences or characters driving, stuff like that. It really elevates what you were able to execute on. It's funny, literally while I was driving here this morning, I was thinking about a specific scene from a project I did a couple of years ago where I was like, oh man, if I had had a drone, that would have been like the establishing shot. We had to get up in a scissor lift to get the establishing shot of the town. And I was like, oh, we could have just done that with a drone and there would have been a little movement on the shot. It just would have been so much better. So, you should be aware of drones, obviously, as an indie filmmaker. And you should be aware of DJI because they really do dominate in the space. They just do. They just win. Like, they're very, very good at drones. They're good at a bunch of other stuff, but they're really winning drones. And people keep trying to come at them and not pulling it off. Sony's trying to come at them right now. And Sony tends to win battles. So, I'm excited to see that battle. But Mavic just came out with the Mavic 3. So if you're, if you're doing an indie feature next year and you're hiring a drone up, you should be asking about the Mavic 3. And the big cool thing about the Mavic 3 is that you can get the Cine upgrade, which lets you shoot straight to 5K ProRes. And that's great because that's going to give you a whole lot more latitude when it comes to post-production color grading. So if you have a high contrast scene, which is really common, you use drones outside. High contrast is very common outside where you might have like bright sun and dark shadows behind a building, yada, yada. And the ability to shoot straight to ProRes HQ at 5.1K in like an affordable drone is super duper
2: cool. And that is what is up with tech news this week. It's funny. You talk about the drone. Like I feel like whenever I see a drone shot, and not every time because obviously I'm not aware, but so often I see them and I feel like, oh, it's a drone shot. Like I'm very (laughs) conscious of it. Yes. And I think the reason is because they are a... I feel like they're a fairly recent addition to the cinematic language or grammar. So I feel like I see them and they just. So I saw, I think it was the News Western. Of the world. Yeah, that's, we talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, we've gotten to that part. Anyway, in News of the World, which is a Western, there was a drone shot or a few that I was just like, nah, nah not in a Western. But anyway, I have a weird thing about them. Charles is aware because we've talked about it before.
1: But they're like emotionless. Right? I mean, it's just like purely an establishing shot.
2: And I don't have anything against an establishing shot, I would say. I like how in a lot of movies of your things would play out way more than an establishing. I like the big frames and the wide angles. Like I think that I don't know. I'm not this isn't coming from a super educated perspective in terms of I'm not a DP and really not a director. But when I see drone shots, there's something about it that Sort of pulls me out. Not every time, obviously. I'm sure there were some drone shots in many things that just happened and glossed through me because they were appropriate and worked and I wasn't thinking about it. Like most shots.
1: I'm inclined to agree with you, George, because I don't feel like I've seen a drone shot that makes me feel anything. Right? I mean, like, yes, they're useful for... Really? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. It's God's
2: eye view, right? We've yeah, done posts on this on the website about like the usage of angles and what they create. Yeah. And I'm a big believer personally that a shot in and of itself doesn't create an emotion. It's more like the juxtaposition of the prior shot, or you know, I think no, no, no. A know, shot what can totally seeing-
1: a shot can totally create an emotion. Mise en scène can totally create an emotion. And like drone shot, you're just seeing everything and you're moving through it without any kind of emotional perspective. Right? Okay, so I'm going to go
0: I'm going to go bigger with our definition of what drone shots are and I'm going to go back to a little movie called The Red Balloon, which if you haven't seen it it's from 1956. It is like a very early like helicopter heavy movie about a boy and his red balloon in Paris and there are absolutely helicopter shots in that movie. That are, there's not a lot, but like they are there where you have an emotional experience feeling this red balloon float away from this boy who loves it that you could only get from that aerial perspective that wasn't possible even a few years before because helicopters were just not a thing. So like, I think you can absolutely create emotion through the helicopter perspective. I don't think you need it to be an everything Mm. But I do think that there are times where that view is like a special view. Now, I'm a big helicopter nerd. Heartbreakingly, (laughs) both the director and cinematographer of The Red Balloon ended up dying in helicopter accidents because helicoptering used to be way more dangerous than it is today, Mm. which is the other reason. I mean, helicoptering is, first off, way less dangerous than it used to be, although R.I.P. Kobe, it remains somewhat dangerous, even Mm -hmm. to this day. And the beauty of drones is that when you need that shot, you can get it. Mm -hmm. You know, that beautiful helicopter shot over Paris of a red balloon floating away from a boy who loves it. You can now get that shot in a way that you couldn't before with a drone. I think they're overused. I'll absolutely agree with that. Like, I find it very distracting in period work. But, I mean, there were shots in Dune that were full CGI, so they weren't drones. Yeah,
2: I was going to bring up Dune because I was going to say Dune does an excellent job with them, but I don't know what to call those shots. Like,
0: I, mean, I don't know they're, where... They're grown POV they or God's POV.
2: Right, like- yeah. <laughs> they were not flown on a DJI, <laughs> I did not think. I mean, I mean it, there, was, there was it was more about taking in the perspective of, of things and the context of the angle. Like, it was less about, like, how did they do it? I guess what I would say to put a point on, to to add to what you're saying, Charles, and to agree with you, Kath, is that, yeah, you're right. A shot can create an emotion. It's more about, do people sometimes use a tool like a drone because they can or because they should, right? Is that what we're really talking about? Like, you can use all kinds of things now, but should you? Like intentionality, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always about The goal is you feel like you have
0: all of the tools at your disposal and you're making good decisions about when each tool is appropriate. I also think about action cinema. Like I think about like it wasn't drones, obviously it was helicopter work, but like the helicopter work in Rio in fast five is one of the most memorable things about fast five, which is like, if you haven't seen fast five is a magnificent movie. So like in action cinema, Like helicopter work, not drone work, but similar POVs were being explored, was fantastic in building that sense of the action taking place in that city.
2: I think that what it is, is that here's an example I'm going to use that I think could apply to the indie filmmaker. I think what I object to maybe as a film watcher is that I think that the filmmaker thinks... Well, using the drone, I can get these angles that are really reserved usually for the big budget, like for like Mad Max Fury Road or something. But the thing I would say is like, yeah, but in Mad Max Fury Road, you kind of need that angle and it fits. Whereas in your indie movie, I don't think you do. I think you need to approach it more like the way they would shoot a movie where everything's eye level, because that's probably the context of your story. But I'm not trying to tell people how they should shoot their movies. I will say that a great example of a not action that I think uses God's eye really well for story is the opening of American beauty because we're hearing his voice and he's dead. Right. Yeah. And that is the classic, like Spoiler super motivated. Alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but it, no, but it's, but it, that's true. He, doesn't he open the movie saying that I mean, I'm, I'm Mr. Burnham words. and you're hearing this cause I'm dead
1: or something. Well, he's like, what does he say? Whatever. That's fine. Everyone's probably seen American Beauty.
2: Okay, look, if you're, what is it now, 20 years? (laughs) I feel like our general rule has been two months. I feel like we've done a
0: really good job of not discussing the fact that Paul Dune dies at the end of Dune. But now that it's been out for three weeks, we can accept that, yeah.
2: Look, I was in high school when American Beauty came out. If you haven't seen it by now, maybe you shouldn't because Kevin Spacey was canceled. And we shouldn't celebrate his work. But anyway, that movie, there's a lot to like about it. And I love the use of the drone there. Or not a drone, obviously. But the use of that perspective is just perfect. So yeah, it can work, for sure. It can work in a non-action context. Everything can work in in the right context. And maybe sometimes you need to say to people like me, just shut up. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do a drone in on the alarm clock going off to start my film and you're going to like it and I'll tell you why. Prove me wrong.
0: I'm going to wrap with this, which is, I think sometimes filmmakers need to get stuff out of their system. <laughs> and <laughs> the toys? Like, you mean? Yeah, like I built a crane in film school and the first thing I shot with it, it was like a little six foot camera boom arm. I don't even know if it's fair to call it a crane. But like, literally the first short I shot with it, every single fucking scene had a crane <laughs> shot. And like, now I feel like I make some like pretty good decisions about like, oh, this would be a good time to lift up a little bit or like this would be a good time to be on a stinger. But like, I really got it out of my system. <laughs> and I'm very glad that I got, you know, and I, so I feel like a little bit like one of the fun things about like the fact that these are so affordable you can buy them. is You yeah. can buy it and you can shoot with it like on your days off or you can go to a park and you can kind of get it out of your system and then, I agree. I think it's currently being overused, but I think it will settle into a nice period of like, let us use it at the appropriate moments. Cause like, I also want to say, uh, Night of the Hunter had a whole bunch of very early helicopter work that was deliberately God's eye view. Cause that movie is about the struggle between good and evil. Yeah. And there's this amazing speech where the preacher is saying, God, please bring me another widow that I can kill for her money. And that <laughs> it's like following these little kids in a God's eye perspective while he talks about finding more widows. And it's
2: magnificent. And like, you you that's Charles Lawton. Yes. And when you broke back then, when you did it back then, it was so, it's so jarring to go above because so many movies were shot in such a specific language. Like, just like when John Ford put a camera in a hole under a cavalry, it was like, whoa, because you'd watch a whole movie without being there, you know? So that now I think because the angles are just so all over the place. You can easily lose sight of it, but if, if you're intentional about it, you can really, you can blow people away with very little. As it turns out, all right, that was a lot of fun uh, drone chat. All right, our final
0: this week is good deal, bad deal, and it's a really good one that I have tons of thoughts on. And From it is
2: Austin. I apologize Walnut. if I yeah, Walmouth. You want to read it, Charles? No, you can read it. Okay. Hey, no film school. I like the good deal, bad deal segment. Hey, so do we. Thank you, Austin. Please, everybody, send them in. Yes. And I have an interesting position that I think really applies. I'm a writer-director producing a proof of concept for one of my films. The budget for the proof of concept won't be very robust, and a lot of shooting of it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little, sorry, will rely on favors. Here's a little context. It's a 25-page short with a few locations, probably a week or two to shoot. While I have a clear intention to hire anyone who works on my proof of concept on the feature, which would then result in them getting paid, I have no way of 100% guaranteeing that it will get made or that there will be a feature, et cetera, et cetera, because things could go south. My question is, is this a bad deal and or something that happens with proof of concept shorts? Also, as someone who's building a team and trying to inspire others to be involved, what's the most transparent way of going through that process best,
1: Austin? Great
0: question. Great question. I've worked on so many proof of concepts. My feature, we did a proof of concepts. Two other features I tried to get made, we did proof of concepts and the features didn't get made. So I I understand intimately all of the ins and outs of all of this. My first thought is that I think you treat it as a completely separate project because Outside of maybe the the key creatives, like the cinematographer and maybe the production designer and the editor, it's very rare you're able to work with the same people when the proof of concept comes because so much of life is about availability, right? So much of life is about like, oh, you know, a year and a half later when I'm doing the proof of concept, are you on another job already? Are you, a, you know, a lot of times productions don't shoot in the same place. So now this proof of concept I shot in LA, now we're actually shooting the project in Canada for some reason or whatever am I going to be able to afford to bring everybody? So like for me, I always treated the proof of concepts as very much a individual project. And I always thought the smartest way to do it was to say like, look, I I try and avoid asking people to come up free unless they're students in some sort of accredited internship project. So it's like, you know, there's a, there's a bare minimum thing that everybody's getting at least X the local minimum wage or whatever. So that like people are at least getting paid. And then I'm very upfront of like, obviously this is something I'm doing to grow my career. But I know that it's not growing your career. So like, I appreciate you coming out. We're going to like make it as pleasant. Like I would never run past a certain number of hours. The food was always amazing. Like all of those things you can do to trade off the fact that people are cutting you a favor rate. Okay. And then the other thing, and this never goes away. I, have a, I was at lunch with like a very famous DP a couple of years ago. And I was like, when are you doing another feature? And he said, man, I haven't shot enough commercials lately to try and get a crew to do a feature with me. And what he meant was that, like, everybody knows you always make less on features and you make it up on other work. So if you can, see if you can't build that crew with better paying work. If you can't get some industrials or music videos or commercials where everybody's getting paid a little better, where you're building more loyalty that way. And then when it comes time to say, all right, I'm doing this proof of concept and we're shooting for eight days, but I've just gotten you all of this other paid work that's been great paid. Can you do me a favor on this one? It's a much different scenario. Because also the reality is, even when you get a feature made, you know, the rates might not be that great on the feature, right? You, you have a dream of like, I'm going to raise $5 million and everyone's going to get paid scale. And then you're like, oh, I actually only raised $500,000, but I'm still going to do it. Now everybody, you're back in the asking everybody to do your favors, which is way easier if everybody's been getting a ton of paid work out of you on all of that other stuff. So those are my thoughts. It's really hard to build a regular team because everyone is super busy. Everyone's dream is like, I've got a DP and an editor and they're my first call for everything. But the reality situation is is you never really get to that until you're making so much work that is at the real rates that people can afford to be loyal, right? Like Wally Pfister at one point was like, I pretty much only shoot for Chris Nolan now. And it's like, well, yeah, but you can say that because Chris Nolan has great budgets and is working regularly. If Chris Nolan didn't have huge budgets and wasn't working regularly, then you'd probably have to shoot for other people, Wally Pfister. And then you might not be available when Chris Nolan wants to hire you. And that you see that happen. There's very few really long director DP relationships.
2: It's uh, actually a lot of the DPs we've talked to, or I've talked to you on the NFS podcast, they'll work with, like, you know, Fincher works with a couple different DPs because of availability we've talked to some of them like Jeff Cronin with, but like there's uh, other ones because you have to like availability. And so there'll be a TV project that maybe Jeff will do with Fincher while Fincher has another feature that the other DP is doing, but there is like, even at that level to illustrate your point, it is really hard to be like, I'm only working with this crew and this team.
1: Yeah. I love this question. I think, my take on it is very similar to Charles. Austin, I love that you have, the, the way that you've asked this question is, to you, it seems like the most compelling piece about this project is that it could lead to a feature. But like Charles said, I think it's better to take the proof of concept as a totally separate thing from the feature. Actually, I think the fact that it could lead to a feature is probably the least compelling aspect about this project because it's such a toss-up. Right, like yes, maybe the proof of concept is amazing, and then yes, maybe it helps you get to the next step to like raise the money that you need to make that feature. But there's so many things that could happen along the way, so there is absolutely, like you said, no guarantee. I think what could be compelling about this is it's an opportunity to work with your friends or their friends and do something that's interesting and fun, potentially new for them. And if you make the food really good, (laughs) if you if you keep the days short. And if you shoot it in a way where, you know, these people aren't having to give up their paid jobs to do it, you know, like say you shoot on weekends or you hire people that that are looking for work now and so they can afford to spend a couple of weeks with you, then at least it can be, you know, an enjoyable and interesting experience. I think like every good deal, bad deal, you know, there's ways to make it a good deal. I mean, it's not always going to be money.
2: I like where you're going, Kath. I like that. I like the question for those reasons too. I'll try to be quick. Here's the thing. I have definitely, like, I was definitely guilty of being like you in this way, Austin, but not being nearly as thoughtful. I wonder if any of the folks that I've worked with listened to this. Some of my friends to this day, I don't know why they're still my friends, but I thought making these shorts and proof of concepts, you know, 20 years ago was totally worth it. Like, come on guys. Like what else are you going to do on the weekend or the summer? Come out and, and hold the boom for me or help me crew or help me shoot or, you know, because, Hey, what if we get paid later. It's like, it's not a motivating factor. It's true. Like it's not, it's not a compelling reason. And you know, if the food is going to be Del Taco or something that makes it worse and expecting, <laughs> expecting people to want to do that because, Hey, we're making movies, right? No, there's not much in it for them. But I think your wisdom is in saying, I want to be transparent. I want to figure out a way to make this a good deal. Like, I want people to want to do this. And you're like way ahead of the game by thinking that way. And I think the answer is me and a partner of mine always, like we talked about how there exists a favor system. Charles probably and Kath both familiar with it in certain contexts in film school where it would be like, hey, I'll produce your short and you will shoot my short or I'll art I'll do the art department and props, and you'll be my AD. Like whatever skill you can, you know, the favor system. The favor system kind of works. The money system is obviously the one that works the most. But if you can't do the favor system, which is where I think you're headed, which is like, look, if you come out for this week on my proof of concept and you're my DP, what skill do I have that's tradable? And unfortunately, being the writer-director is not usually one of them. Um, Maybe (laughs) writer, maybe, but everybody wants to be a writer director. So it's not the exchange. It's it's not on the exchange. Maybe being a producer, but like a line producer, like a miserable, like unhappy producer. like (laughs) So like a hard work producer, hard skills, not soft skills, essentially. So what can you exchange? What do they need? Maybe it's a loan out of gear. Maybe it's editing. Maybe it's, I don't know. But think about what you can offer them in exchange. Because if money doesn't work, the favor system is reliable. And then I would say, lastly, if you can't do any of those and you're really trying to find a way to get somebody motivated to work on it, then it's got to be like, what do you want to do? Is there a way you that this can be appealing to you? Is there some a tool you want to use as a director of photography? Or is there a lens you'd like that we can rent? Or is there a shoot date that you have to basically allow them to dictate some terms, I think, to make it a good deal. And even then, I'm not sure I would even call it a good deal, but it's more, it's less of a bad deal if you can just say like, okay, you're doing me a huge favor by shooting my movie, my proof of concept this week. What week works for you? You want to pick the food or like, however you can make it something of value for them as an experience. If you get into that mindset, then I think you're getting there. But again, favor system is probably your best bet.
1: And another important thing with this too is people are going to want to use this for their reels most likely. So definitely when the film is done, make sure that you have that conversation with your actors and your heads of department. If they want to use it for their reels, whether it's through a public link or a private link, it's a good thing to, to allow them to do that and make sure that they get a cut.
0: Well, and, and make sure it happens really quickly. So I was always with my actors who were cutting me like low rates to come out on these things or like crew heads, like editor, I mean, like cinematographer, I gave them dailies like the week after the shoot. Like I would just be like, bring a hard drive by the office and here's the dailies. Like you can use any of it immediately. You don't even have to wait for us to finish.
1: That's great. That's, you're a more generous person than me.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I ended up doing a lot of these. And so you can only ask people favors a couple of times before you're like, oh, I actually have to do a lot to balance it. But I really want to go back to something, Kev, you were talking about of like, One of the things is that it's, it's like, one of the reasons why people do these is because it's fun to work on projects people are passionate about, right? Like, commercials are fun, music videos are fun, but, like, in the end, you're on a commercial, even the client's not that passionate about the product they're selling, right? (laughs) They might pretend to if the owner of the company is around, but even then, sometimes the owner of the company is like, whatever, we're just moving units. Whereas like, it's really, we all got into movies to work on stuff people are passionate about. Mm -hmm. And it's
2: fun to be around someone who's
0: excited about their project.
2: Yeah. If you can learn to develop the gift of gab and you can convince them that you're really passionate and that it's worth it, then that more power to you. That'll that'll serve you well in other ways. I would also like the genuine passion is that Charles is talking about is also valuable. And I like that, Charles. I remember a couple of times with actors, I actually just said, I'll cut your reel for you. Like, yeah. deal. And I did it. And I don't know that I did a great job, but I offered my time. So, yeah, think about the favor exchange.
1: Yeah, I think we should all move towards the barter system anyways, as a, as a country. Well, I'm in favor.
0: I, <laughs> barter has huge issues. I have like, wait, let's, let's, let's table next that time. for next week. Next, next week, <inaudible> Charles podcast. rants about why the barter system keeps coming up in the arts and why it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many thoughts on barter.
2: The money system is best.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a monetist. I think mon- money has function. I think money has value. I don't believe in Bitcoin, but I certainly believe in a non-gold standard fiat currency. I think there's benefits. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm on the internet at charleshain.com. I'm doing another podcast right now called Distorted by Glamour, which is all about labor and film. Working on an episode right now about the addictive nature of working in the movie industry. And uh, that episode will drop soon. Check it out wherever cool. your podcasts are. That sounds
1: great. Uh, I'm Kath Tolentino. You can find me at Katherinetolentino.com. You can see some of my short films and the feature that I'm working on now there on that website.
2: And I'm George Edelman, at George Edelman on Twitter. You can read about everything we talked about and more on nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter at nofilmschool. Head over to Facebook and like us there if you're using Facebook or Instagram or Metaverse or whatever. You can find us, No Film School. Go over to our YouTube channel. We have some cool stuff there, too. And be sure to listen to all of our weekly episodes like this one. They drop a Thursday or Friday. Our interviews drop usually Tuesday, sometimes Wednesday, depending on special circumstances. And I'm doing a new thing now where if you head over to iTunes and you leave us a five-star review, I will read on the podcast what you wrote. our review. So go ahead, leave us a five-star review, write something down. I'll read it. It'll be fun. I promise. Whatever you write. Take advantage of this opportunity now. Thank you all so much for listening.